everyone. Welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we have three and a half issues of Hellblazer. We are covering three issues of Hellblazer, plus the Vertigo Jam one-shot. That's right, and when we last left off, John Constantine, he had had a conversation with an archangel. Mm-hmm. which led to thugs attacking his girlfriend. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> thugs attacked his girlfriend because he had a conversation with an archangel. Yeah. Like John a had a year plan. Or two no, early. it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> we can talk about that at some point here, because there is sort of a thematic point that's being made that doesn't entirely hold up if you look at the details. Yeah, it doesn't super fit with the facts. John Constantine had a plan to get himself out of trouble with the First of the Fallen, who's basically the devil, which involved, in some way, corrupting the Archangel Gabriel. We don't know how yet, but he did that. But in the meantime, fell afoul of some racists. The National Front. Yeah, who sent thugs to kill his girlfriend in an attempt to intimidate him. She was not intimidated and beat the shit out of those guys, but she was pretty mad about the whole thing. Yeah, she's not happy that John's bullshit touched her life Yeah, in that way and put her at risk. And in fact, he had promised when they got together that she wouldn't be embroiled in his mystical bullshit. Yes. It's worth noting, the conversation that he had with the Archangel Gabriel that was the trigger for those guys coming to the house happened before they even got together. It happened like a year or two earlier. Yeah, that's right. Not only was it a year ago, but it was before they were dating. It was before they were dating. But this is sort of, I think, what you were getting at by saying that there's a thematic resonance, but the facts don't necessarily line up. Mm -hmm. Which is that, like, he actually was not done screwing with the Archangel. No, Uh, he wasn't. And he happened to to pick it up that week. Right, exactly. But... If you actually follow the thing, the specific thing that the National Front ruffians were mad about was a conversation that they had had quite a long time earlier. So, like, repeatedly throughout that story arc and in the issue we're about to read, people keep saying, like, that John caused that to happen. Yeah. Because he couldn't leave magic alone, which is not really true. Not in the specifics, right. And there's a theme that I like in the book that, like, John, I don't know if it's even magic or if it's just, like, a life of adventure, that he's kind of a thrill seeker and that he just keeps getting in trouble. But at the same time, a lot of those problems seem to be finding him. And he will repeatedly raise the defense here that he he was trying to arrange things so that he could get out and be with Kit. Yeah. Um, Whether that is a story he's telling himself or whether that was truly his motivation, it's up to you to decide. Well, let's get into this comic book. Sure. This is Hellblazer number 67, Dear John. Written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, colors by Tom Zuiko. Lettered by Todd Klein, and it was edited by Stuart Moore. The cover is by Glenn Fabry. We have John lying on a tombstone in the center, with several angry faces to the left, and what appears to be Kit walking towards a ship on the right. Yeah. Worth noting, this issue was apparently first printed under the title End of the Line, but that was either an error or was, or was retconned away. That is also the title of number 62, so they'd used that title quite recently. Which issue is 62? End of the line is the one where John digs up the other Constantine to talk about the sort of family curse 
one where he's saving Gemma from becoming a wizard. Oh, right. Of course, the end of the Vertigo line is a thing that happened earlier this year. (laughs) (laughs) So we open on some aspect shots of a graveyard and narration telling us the best way to kill a man. See, this comic book is a bad influence on the youth. You put the blade in his best friend's hand and you kill the poor booger with love. And we hone in here on John lying, sleeping on a mausoleum with a bottle of whiskey in his fist and the title, Dear John. Isn't a mausoleum a building? I'm not entirely sure what this thing is called. It's not a headstone because it's not at the head. No, yeah, it's like a... This is like a a raised... A tomb? A sepulcher? Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a sarcophagus, anyway. Right. We flash back in time and... The narration is kind of giving us Kit's thoughts here, not John's, but in the third person. Yes. But I don't think it's John's opinion on Kit's thoughts. I think it's I think it's omniscient. Yeah, this seems to be Kit's real thoughts. She's nervous about what she's about to do. She's too brave to do it in a letter. Do you think she's nervous and anxious because it really counts this time? Is that a song lyric? Yeah, it's it's Alkaline Trio. Okay, cool. <laughs> you didn't answer my question though. You answered my question with a question. I, I guess I did, yes. She's too brave to leave John in a letter, but she knows it's going to destroy him. See, I thought it would be a letter based on the title of this issue. Yeah, well, a Dear John is a letter that's sent to break up with somebody. And the main character's name is John. That's right. Ah. So it implies that he's being broken up with. Even though he does not get a Dear John, she tells him outright. She actually says typical out loud because... She's so frustrated thinking about how John has become dependent on her and is taking her for granted. So John comes in, and Kit reveals that she is going back to Belfast, adding, I don't want to be with you anymore, John. John starts to make excuses, but Kit reminds him that he let her down, broke his promise to keep her out of it when she got attacked by gangsters in her flat. Nobody's perfect, love. I don't want you to be perfect. I just want a quiet life without some bastard kicking my door down and coming at me with a switchblade. Quiet life? So you're moving to Belfast? Oh, don't be so bloody stupid. John was being a dick there. That was a dickish comment. He's alluding to the troubles. Yes. Worth noting the layout of this page. We have three panels of action in the middle and the top and bottom panels. Both are panoramic views of John and Kit, but in the first they are looking eye to eye and in the second they are looking away from each other. I've never got this close to anyone before, right? Never. I've never felt so good either. And I definitely never said stuff like this to anyone in my life. And now you've ruined it all, John. Bloody hell. How did you get to be so cold? She gives him a furious look at that. Yeah, Steve Dillon's furious kid is something to behold. She chews him out, saying that just because he's fucked up his life doesn't mean everyone else is ready to fuck up theirs. She tells him he can stay in the apartment until the end of the week, but he says piss off and bolts. She's not about to take that. Oi, Constantine! You're gonna take your bloody old shite with you! She shouts and throws his suitcase out the window. Yeah, an open suitcase full of clothes and grimoire pages. Right. There's this panel here where the suitcase is landing in front of him, where he really kind of looks like like an anime detective. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, we've commented... (laughs) He really does. It's the eyebrows. <laughs> uh, and the, like, slightly bent knees. 
you know, we've commented before how John often looks immaculate at the beginning of story arcs, and there's certainly about to be a contrast here. So we got to a bar where John is drinking on the patio and trying to convince himself it was a dream. Yeah, he really can't face the fact that Kit has left him. He doesn't know what's going to stop him from falling deep into a hole he can't get out of. Yeah, so he's trying not to cry in the bar and not entirely succeeding, and that's when one of the young punks at a nearby table says, Sad bastard. And that sets things off. Did you call me sad? I'll freaking smack you one, you little turd. Look, piss off, mate, will ya? It wasn't me. It was you, then. I, I... It was! You little bastard. You're calling me sad? You're sad, you mop-headed wanker. Another of the kids that tries to intervene in the fight. So John breaks a beer glass on his face, which is definitely escalating things. Yeah. That's exacerbating things for everybody. He yells at the kids until the bartender yells at him to stop, and then some. Get lost, you witch. Oh, yeah, that was a mistake, too. Don't you talk to me like that. I'll have you barred. I'll get my tom on you. And this is where things get weird. He calls out the lead punk on uh, touching up his kid's sister in her pram. Yuck. Yeah. A pram is a stroller, so this is a very young kid's sister, and that's not appropriate in the least, but how the hell does John know about this? Yeah, he must have used some kind of magic to read the kid's mind, because it seems clear that the kid is, like, caught when he accuses him of this. It's not, like, out of the blue. Yeah, he says, huh, how did... And John says, I know. So the bartender goes and gets her husband. Hey! At this point, Chaz is driving by. John is yelling at the kids, You'd all be bloody dead if it wasn't for me. And this is what I do it for, is it? A pack of tossers. Yeah, Chaz steps in to stop John from beating the hell out of these kids. But at that moment, the male proprietor of the shop appears. Roy, That'd what... be Tom. Yeah. Right, what the bloody hell's all this? Who called my Angie a witch? Bloke's just had a few, okay, mate? I'm taking him home now, right? It's not bloody all right. I ought to have him nicked, that's what I ought to do. I'm trying to be nice to you, Grandad. Piss off. So Tom punches Chaz in the face. And as the fight is going on, there's also a panel of John sort of standing off to the side, and he's narrating about the pit opening behind him, the pit that is always waiting. Yeah, anytime it seems like he's getting his life in order, it's only a matter of time until he falls back in. Yeah, that sort of depression and self-destruction that threatens to engulf him when things go wrong for him. So Chaz has got John in the car and is driving away. He demands to know what that was all about. Have you seen the friggin' state of my face? Kate left me. Oh, shit. Later on, we find them drinking. I guess this is Chaz's place. No, it must be, it must be Kit's place. For one thing, the walls are the same color. Oh, okay. But also... In a minute, Chaz is going to leave Constantine there. Oh, that's a good point. Chaz says he knows how John feels. John says he can't possibly know. Because he... I'll just say it. What would you know, living with that fat bitch? Now, just a bloody minute. Oh, bollocks. Piss off, will you, Chaz? Go back where you belong with all the other arseholes. Yeah, that's Chaz giving... uh... Chaz gets on board the beat-up John Constantine train. He gives John a, a right hook. He's, uh, he's pretty mad. Yeah, he punches sl- him a good one in the face, then he slams his face into the table a couple times. I'll freaking show you where you belong, Constantine. Yup. He drags him to the bathroom and shoves his face in the toilet. Prick. And then he walks out. 
And John is saying, you'll come crawling back. You always do. Ill-advised thing to say. Yeah. Later on, we find John wandering around very drunk. There's a good bit here on whiskey. He remembers his friend Brendan calling it bottled sunshine. Doesn't look like sunshine to me. Slops in the bottle like a wino's piss, dark and sour and rotten. Friggin' shit! He smashes the bottle in rage. Good job I've got another one. John wanders into a graveyard, thinking that this is where he belongs. That's where all me mates hang out. You saw what I was, Kit. You saw right through me front, and you liked me anyway. So I made me plans, and I wheeled and dealed. And did what I could do, just so as I could be with you. Shouldn't have bothered with all that stuff. Should have dropped it and gone off with you. Bollocksed everything, just because I can't handle that closeness. Because I'm afraid of a word. Just one little word. L-O-V-E. Well, this is a classic Steve Dillon page. The letters in love slope downwards as John passes out, with the last panel mostly black in the shadow of the tomb as John falls unconscious. It's a really evocative page. John is perhaps being unfairly hard on himself here. Yeah, once again, he didn't really cause the series of events that led to Kit being attacked by not staying out of magic. Although it's true that he wasn't staying out of magic. Right. Yeah. And we've sort of had very little indication that he was sabotaging the relationship out of a fear of intimacy. I guess you could file down having a massive 40th birthday party and destroying the apartment. But that even wasn't really his decision. That was the Lord of the Dance. (laughs) Massive parties are never a decision. (laughs) On the liner, Kit is standing at the rail on the deck. Bastard. Stupid wee bastard. She says, uh, wiping a tear from her eye. And that is the end of this issue. Yep. Something to add? Bottle of sunshine. Well, I think that's a neat line because it's, um... It's showing you sort of the two different... Two different views on whiskey. When John was drinking with Brendan, who was, by the way, a bona fide alcoholic. Um, but when John was drinking with Brendan, that was like a celebration. That was fun. That was whiskey as as living life and now that he's drinking it to to escape his emotional pain it's it's disgusting piss in a bottle well yeah although they were kind of escaping pain the time that they were having fun they were still like they were kind of eulogizing each other well that is true because they were both dying and brendan was in fact dying quite imminently yeah so that's a good point That brings us to Hellblazer number 68, and we have an old friend here on the cover. Kevin! (laughs) (laughs) That is the King of Vampires. We met him in issue 50, was it? Yeah, that's right. Remarkable Remarkable Lives. Remarkable Lives. Because he lived remarkably. Right. The return of Remarkable. Um, Same credits for this issue, except the letters are by Gaspar. And on the cover here, we can see a couple of statue-looking vampires with Kev. They are very, like, pale and kind of lifeless in their way. I suppose they're undead. Way to go, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they also have red eyes. All the way around red, uh, with the irises not differentiated from the pupils. Yeah, and way off in the background, we can see John slugging down the whiskey. So the first page, it introduces us to various street people. Yeah, this long narration introducing us to London's homeless. One who bit off a cop's ear. 
one who's eating rotten tomatoes. Thousands more just like them, brittle lives of cold and sickness, brick wall endings. And the last panel here shows a man in a coat sleeping underneath graffiti, which is just the way that we left the Archangel Gabriel. This one's been on the street since summer. Won't say why. Bit of a git. Nasty. Icy wee eyes. Piss artist, too. Hasn't hit the meths yet, but give it time. December now, and a bloke like him will drink anything to keep out the cold. His name? I think it's John. The title of this issue is Down All the Days, which is another Pogues reference. Nice. Yeah, here's where we come in on Constantine. Heavily bearded, he's a mess, he's apparently homeless, and he's just finished off another bottle of whiskey. John Constantine is homeless. And it's months later. Yeah, I missed the part where it says it's December. This is the August issue. So since summer didn't seem very long. But it's, it's December again. December again. Meanwhile, in the underground lair of Kevin, the king of vampires. His name's not Kevin. We just like to call him that. We just made that bit up. It's the king of vampires. The K-O-V. Or Kevin, as we call him. Oh. And you should, too. A vampire named Darius is taking what some ugly fish are doing in a pool as some kind of ill omen. We also have in the uh, foreground here a female vampire making out with a corpse, which is pretty gross. Maybe she's just eating it. Just she's... licking up the good bits? Yeah, just biting bits off of the face there. Could be. It's gross. Yeah. We learn that something bad happened to a vampire named Jimmy. J-I-M-I, like Hendrix. Jimmy was young and stupid. That's all. He dropped 500 tabs before going hunting, and he stayed out after dawn because he dug the colors. And he got sunburned. That's all there is to it. So Darius and 7th Kevin decide to hit up London. Uh, let us go out again tonight for pleasure. The night is still young. <laughs> yes. There's a vampire named Mary in town, which is apparently a friend of theirs. They're glad to... They, they want to see Mary. That's why they're going to London. Darius has a fun idea to pop over to Buckingham Palace and fight Prince Charles. He's royalty, is he not? Inbred, old friend. I think he's actually his uncle's. It'd be like drinking red water. No body to it at all. Besides, I'm told he's utterly insane since the Calabraxis possession. They keep him in a rubber room and they won't let him out in public without enough Valium in him to floor a whale. Oh well, shame. You just don't think of these things. Evidently not. You just leave the thinking to me. Meanwhile, John is begging on the street. Someone named Stuart throws some change on the ground for him, rather contemptuously. I checked. This Stuart doesn't look anything like Editor Stuart Moore. <laughs> Good to know. He picks up the change and goes into a liquor store. The clerk apparently knows him here. Now, this clerk, I feel like we've seen this clerk get killed, like, three different times. <laughs> This is just like one of Steve Dillon's favorite character designs to kill. Yeah, he's just like this is like a stock. <laughs> he looks an awful lot like Tom the Waiter. Yeah. Anyway, he offers him a wide selection of wines from around the world, saying that he knows Constantine is a gentleman of distinguished tastes. I'll let you in on my best-kept secret. It really is the thinking alcoholic's tipple, sir. Yeah, he says, holding up. A container of lighter fluid. So he's kind of taking the piss out of John here. Yeah. With all that talk about him being, you know, a discerning gentleman when he's clearly just a wino. Yeah, yeah. So Darius and uh, Kevin Can Wait have a naked guy tied to a beam. I wonder, says Kevin Can Wait. What do you wonder? 
I wonder what's happened to Constantine. You, uh, you always get upset when you think about him, my lord. Let's not spoil a perfect evening. It's as if he was never there. No one's seen him or heard from him. I was foolish when I met him. Didn't really understand the man at all. I wanted him as a spy. I should have kept clear of him upon reflection. You can't see your reflection. That's a valid point. <laughs> the great things that were about to happen, the big stuff that's happening in hell now, will make Kevin a place on Earth, it says. He knew all along that John was the cause of them. Hell is in chaos, the devil is neglecting his kingdom, and his brothers are hermits. The first hate for Constantine will be his undoing, he says. And then there's a line here discussing the first and Kev's relationship with each other. We've never really gotten on. He sees me as a useless hedonist. I see him as a useless antique. Mary interrupts these musings. She is looking forward to a special night, she says. Right, this is the first time we see Mary. She is a pale, dark-haired woman with big boobs. Yeah. I see you've brought something to drink, she says. To the horror of the naked guy tied to a beam. Darius and Kev both start undressing as well. Mary takes a mouthful of this guy's blood from his neck, and then, in an utterly goofy-looking full-page splash, which provides this issue's only comic relief, <laughs> she empties the blood in her mouth into the king's mouth. It dribbles down his chest, where Darius begins licking it from his abdomen. So he is a hedonist. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, he made that clear the last time. Meanwhile, Constantine has found him place has found him place a self to squat. Nice. He has found himself a place to squat, complete with a mattress, and he's got a bottle. Just then another homeless guy wanders in. This is his place, he says. He found it right before John did. Piss off. Where's your friggin' gear? Look, man, I just found the place an hour ago. I went to get me stuff, alright? Sling your hook, bollocks. That's an amazing phrase. Uh, this apparently originated from, like, nautical slang. The hook is the anchor and the sling is the cradle where it's kept. So to put the hook in the sling is to get ready to depart. <laughs> On your bike. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a competing theory that dock workers in 1930s London would use hooks to lift cargo. So those who weren't hired were told to take their hooks and leave. But the anchor explanation seems more prevalent. Horse you and the fuck you rode in. <laughs> <laughs> That's the American way of saying it. Yeah. The guy, Davy, suggests that there's room enough for both of them here. He's got a blanket and he's willing to share. John agrees, but he isn't sharing any of his hooch. It's friggin' freezing, man. How about a swig? Piss off. It's not in the deal. John's hooch, incidentally, is a real bottle, so apparently he didn't settle for the lighter fluid. Yeah. He wasn't taking that crap off of that store clerk. Darius is now covered with blood. He's the only one who doesn't have his clothes back on. Uh, and he is holding up their victim's head. Yeah, the captive is now a skeleton, but for the ripped off head. Was it good for you too? Ha 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 ha! Ha 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 ha! Dick. <laughs> <laughs> so evil! And both Mary and Kevin Deadly Sins appear to find this distasteful. Well... I need to replace the three or four pints this little harlot took out of me. I shall see you both back here an hour from dawn, shall we say? And what shall we do? Mary says. I'm prepared to offer you this chance to lick this blood off me down to the last drop. 
She's clearly not interested in that. No, in that case I shall find myself a few pregnant females and turn to mist and drink the blood of infants in their wombs. I'm not sure I quite understand the logistics of that plan. I, th I think the theory is that he can still drink blood while he's missed. That's the only way it could work. That's the only way it could work. <laughs> They're doing a thing here, and I want to point this out, because they are definitely not falling into, like, the sexy vampires trope. The vampires find each other sexy. It's pretty obvious that Kev and Darius are lovers, and potentially Mary as well. I mean, um, so we had that splash page. It looks like they were all... They were all having good fun together. Yeah. And by good fun, I mean terrifying fun. Terrifying fun, exactly. We're not doing the sort of seductive master vampire situation here. This uh, comic book does not miss opportunities to remind us that they are terrible and they're doing terrifying things. Yeah. Although, when Darius is talking to the severed head, the other two are, he's like, even they are like, no. <laughs> that's, <laughs> no, that's, man. <laughs> that's too much even for them. <laughs> it's not... Um... <laughs> It's not too evil for them. It's just tasteless. Right. It's just, it's just tacky. Yeah. But, so there's a, a danger here that portraying them as, like, evilly hedonistic and also gay lovers would come off very insulting. But I think they've kind of avoided sure. that because Darius and Kev's relationship with each other is actually one of the things that makes them a little more sympathetic. And we're going to see more of that as we go on. Back in his squat, John is puking, thinking he'd be better off with the lighter fluid. He's got a busy schedule. Drinking, puking, sleeps sometimes. Yeah, maybe about one meal a week. His head is clearing for a moment. He's been trying to stop that from happening with the booze. How'd I get to this? Every time I get lucid, I ask that. Every time the answer gets further away. He imagines the accusing faces of Chaz and Kit. But I know, I did my usual trick. Took something good and made it rotten. Took love and made it into hate. He moans and cries out in anguish. And then his hand finds the bottle. And he takes another deep drink. He thinks how all the planning he did so that he could get free of his troubles and be with Kit was useless. He thinks how he could have gone to someone for help after that, but why bother? We get a flashback here to him picking himself up off of the tomb the morning after the last issue, carrying himself down the street and seeing a sale on Bell's Scotch Whiskey, 10% off. He's never really had great impulse control, particularly when it comes to passing stores. Remember the time that he quit smoking and bought smokes on the way home? Oh, yeah. I could have been something brilliant, could have flown, but I'd rather crawl in the shit. There's sort of an obvious parallel to Gabriel here, who used to be able to fly but was last seen down in the dirt. And he asked Constantine specifically, why do you feel compelled to destroy everything beautiful? Constantine is now laying on the mattress under the blanket when his temporary roommate enters. Yeah, Davy comes back and he's complaining about the physical state that he's in, having been prostituting himself. You've been selling your arse? Yep. Davy guesses that John is, the word he uses is scouse, which is to say from Liverpool. Davy is from Sheffield. Sheffield is in New Yorkshire, Liverpool is in the Northwest, so they're not terribly close to each other, but they are both from the North. Davy mentions that he came to London after university for work, but without an address, he's not eligible for welfare. Yeah, and you need money to get a place. It's not so bad being the lowest form of friggin' life. At least it means you can't go any lower. And at this, 
John finally offers him the bottle. John actually feels pity for him. One of the homeless guys from the beginning of the issue is lying next to a trash can when a gigantic black dog appears. And as you may have already guessed, this dog is in fact the disguised form of the seven mounting Kevins of Celestia. What the fuck? <laughs> They're gonna get worse, man. <laughs> as a boy, you stick with Billy, we'll be mates. So he lets the dog lick his hand. He wants to embrace it, but it turns into the King of Vampires. Next thing we know, he's walking away when something catches his eye. It can't be. And he finds Constantine asleep next to Davy, both of them under the blanket with the bottle in their hands. That brings us to Hellblazer number 69, Rough Trade. Same credits as the last issue. Rough trade is a slang term that means lower-class men sought as casual sexual partners by more affluent gay men. The term often implies that the trade partner is paid and may not even identify as gay. Although in more modern usage, the term sometimes is used just to mean any casual sexual encounter between men. Should we talk about this cover? Absolutely. The cover is by Glenn Fabry and Tony Luke. I wasn't sure how the division of labor works out here, although according to the DCU wiki, Tony Luke did the pencils and Fabry the colors. Okay. We've got... Is this Kev again? Yeah, that's Imagine There's No Kevin. He is surrounded by barbed wire grasping hands and gas masks. This is a reference to a World War I flashback that we're going to see him have. Yep, and that's where we open up on this flashback. Dr. Keverly Crusher remembers the first Constantine that he ever killed. Yeah, so this kind of implies that he's been, like, collecting Constantines for generations, which really doesn't make a ton of sense. But, okay. So it's the Psalm 1916. We learned back in Hellbizer number 50 in his first appearance that Kev loved World War I. Right, I think he even mentioned this night. He remembers hearing the cries of the wounded and dying and thinking, There is a god! The Constantine in question is Lance Corporal William Constantine. He's found a buddy of his, Private Wilson, who's had his legs blown off. He's begging for a drink of water. William goes off, finds a canteen on a dead in a skilling, and comes back to Private Wilson, Ken, to find King of Vampires feeding on him. Yeah, I think he's in the uniform of a... Is this a British officer? I don't recognize the uniform. He's definitely in a uniform, though. Yeah, with blood dripping out of his mouth. Friggin' bastard! William charges and puts his bayonet through Kevin's chest. Yep, but Kev just smiles at him and slashes his throat with a fingernail. I opened his throat with my little finger and watched him gape and choke while his life came out in a spurt. Five or six seconds. Back in the present, he looks at the unconscious Constantine laying on the mattress. I'll take my time with this one. I want to point out before we move on from this scene, too, Kev narrates that Bill had none of the magic and mystery of the Constantine clan. Whatever it was that slithered around his family tree had passed him by completely. The idea that there's some kind of curse on the Constantine family, that the men and sometimes the women often get involved with magic and usually come to bad ends, has come up a few times in this run, most notably in 62, when John was trying to keep Gemma from getting into that stuff. Right. 
was a fucking time. So John and Davy wake up. Davy feels sick and he decides to go for a walk. I'll come with you. Anything to drink? Nicked a bottle of gin from that prick earlier. You coming or what? Yeah, it's my tipple. They chat outside the squat. Davy says that he can't take this life and he might hitchhike back to Sheffield. His neck is hurting him. So John takes a look and he sees fang marks and Davy's shirt soaked with blood. Yeah, his whole shoulder is soaked with blood here. Friggin' Jesus, take your coat off. Just then, the king of the vampires hiding nearby. He snaps his fingers and suddenly the neck wound spurts blood and Davy falls over dead. Good one, eh? Really good work here again from Steve Dillon. Davy's sort of confused, helpless look when he sees the bloody shirt is very effective, and the blood spray is kind of black comedy horrifying the way that a lot of the violence in Preacher is. Right. We get a full page of Kev presenting himself to Hellblazer. Constantine. (laughs) (laughs) I feel compelled to work out since I'm Hellblazer. (laughs) Darius and Mary wonder where Kev is, what with Dawn approaching. Mary decides to go back down to the Lightless Warrens, but Darius decides to wait. He gave me this life, Mary. He's more than my lover and my king. He's my friend. Meanwhile, speaking of friends, Kevin asks, Friend of yours? Must be. He's dead. Kev kind of intimates here that he's going to kill Constantine in ten minutes. First I will talk your ear off. Then I will kill you. That sounds like the alert music from Metal Gear Solid playing in my head now. Do you remember the bit at the end where you have to drive away from the nuclear bomb? Or it's it's because the B-52 bombers are going to level the island. Oh, yeah. And there's sure. a timer running. Yeah. That's where I went for, you know, action scene on a timer, even though it's the oldest trope in the book. Well, you also have to get out of the Sector, sector 4 reactor in Final Fantasy VII in 10 minutes. Yeah. The timer in Metal Gear Solid doesn't matter, though. Doesn't? No, they just put that in there to make you hurry. If it runs out, you just... If it runs out, nothing happens. I see. So, what happened to the joys of real life, then? Not listening to the birds sing or watching the sun come up? Can't you kiss a girl and know she loves you anymore? He's explicitly referring to the speech John gave him in Hellblazer number 50 about why human life was better than his immortal one. He says that's the problem with humans. Lack of trust. They deny themselves greatness because they're too terrified to trust the other guy. I should know. I killed the first man on Earth. And before you accuse me of planting poisoned apples in your spiritual Eden, let me point out that two hours before I found him, the idiot had killed his eldest son in an argument over a mango. He goes on starting to allude to uh, a hole in the ozone layer, I think? Yeah. He says that humans are killing the planet and therefore themselves with their apathy. Her skies are ragged veils that will soon burn away altogether. We'll all be in the same boat then, won't we? Terrified of the sun? You'll come running underground out of the light. And guess we'll be waiting. There's a lot of continuous Kev speechifying here. At least it's pretty good. All the things you were told about five years ago that sounded like a science fiction nightmare your children would be facing. It's already happening. Personally, I can't wait for the end of the world. Not this world. 20 billion years from now, when this place is eaten by its cooling sun, I'll just go and find another one. And another. And another. But eventually, when the universe eats itself and everything ends, when physical life is over and all that's left is the spirit, when there's nowhere to go but the lake of fire or the fields of paradise, 
Well, we all still live. But we'll do what we never could before, what every one of my children dreams of. Sleep in peace. He's like the ultimate nihilist. All he wants is to destroy for his entire life and get to witness the end of all existence. John mocks Kev for having lived millions of years and done nothing but kill. That's brilliant, that is. Haven't we already covered this? I'm more interested in why, even though I've lived on other worlds before I came to this one, I've always looked like James Dean. That's having a little fun there. <laughs> but enough about me. Do you want to be a vampire? No. I'm not that low. Just kill me. Hypocrite. The first pounces on John and begins drinking his blood. Ah! What's... Ugh! Yeah, he spits out the blood with disgust, and John looks up and realizes, demon blood. And he laughs as Andre Kevin's lower jaw disintegrates. King of the vampires! King of the friggin' vampires! The sun peeks out from behind a nearby rooftop. Desperately, the king of vampires crawls towards an open barn door. Yep, John grabs him by the leg and holds him back. And I want to mention here that before the sun came up, he was pissing on him, which is rude. Oh, he was, yeah. I didn't notice that until you said it, but he did. Yeah, so he is unable to get away, and as the sun comes up, he catches fire and burns away to nothing. John Constantine just killed the king of the vampires. That was pretty easy. Yeah, that was, uh, that was unexpected. You know, he said earlier, let me do the thinking, but he was kind of stupid here. He said, you let me do the thinking. I was taking that as a declarative, not a... Oh, you were saying, you thought he was saying that Darius does in fact let him do the thinking. Right. Yeah. I thought he was kind of implying that Darius was a demo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I drink. It tastes of evil, hatred, spite, cruelty, sadism. It tastes of screwing the other bastard good and proper. It tastes of winning. And I drain it to the last friggin' drop. John sort of confirms Kev's mocking here. He's human, and that means he's vicious and petty. He won because he was nastier, not because he was better. Yeah, and because Kevin lost track of time. Yeah, well, and the demon blood, which is really just luck. Yeah. You never know which bad guys are going to be fucked over by that demon blood. <laughs> right. Elsewhere, Mary and Darius feel the king die. Oh, Lord, my dear Lord. Whatever, whatever he ran up to there to destroy him, I mean... Oh, Lord above us all, I don't like to think about it. Darius, with kind of a blank look on his face, just heads for the tunnel entrance. I'm just going outside, and maybe some time. That is a quote from one of Robert Falcon Scott's men on the Terra Nova expedition. Is that the South Pole expedition? Yeah, it's an Antarctic expedition. The guy knew that he was dying, and he was holding back the rest of the team from possibly making it to the depot that they needed to get to. So he just walked out into the snow. I see. To commit suicide. That's a that's a cool reference then. And yeah, that is what happens here. Darius, we don't see it, but Darius just steps out into the sun, unwilling to live without the king. John is awakened sometime later by two cops finding Davy's body. Assuming that, that Kev's body must have disintegrated because they don't seem to be reacting to that, just Davy's body. Here, any that bum boy we necked down in Tottenham Court, he is. Wankers! John hears them disrespecting Davy and, and chucks a gin bottle at them. He charges the cops. They club him. 
start beating him. Now who's the wanker, huh? Now who's the friggin' wanker? Yeah, they knock him on the ground and beat the shit out of him. I don't think it's an accident that John defeated the King of the Vampires, and then later in the same issue he loses a fight with two ordinary cops. Right. You know, it shows somewhat how far he's fallen, as well as how his defeat of the King of the Vampires was based to some extent on luck. How he relies on low cunning over real ability. And also that it's no real victory. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He's screwed over the other guy, but he hasn't improved his lot in life. Mm Mm-hmm. As well, this kind of emphasizes how rough the homeless have it. This police violence is a real problem, not like the imaginary ones that John beats on the regular. (laughs) Right. John stumbles into a liquor store, and it's the liquor store attendant from issue 60, the one who I said I hope would become a recurring character. Yeah. She's back. Pretty young black liquor store clerk. She starts to recognize him, but he denies it. Did you used to come in here for Silk Cut? No, that's someone else. So John goes back to his cold, sick life, the narration tells us. Crawling in the shit so he won't have to think about how he could have flown. Thousands more like him. Thousands more tough old lives. Couldn't hack out their slice of the pie. Frigate, at the end of the day, words aren't enough. And they never are, believe me. The end. John Constantine is homeless. (laughs) That part is true. So, the King of the Vampires is dead, but John Constantine is still homeless. Yeah, I mean, we had speculated as to whether he would become a recurring villain, and kind of come to the conclusion that he didn't need to be, that he was effective enough in his one issue. He didn't really become a major part of the plot. No, yeah, you know, we we don't know what'll come out of this, but... He came back... You know, there are occasions where it's really helpful to have an old villain that you don't really care about. Yeah. So that you can do a story about the fact that someone is an old villain. Like, in that uh, first season X-Files episode, Tombs. Oh, yeah. The episode is about Mulder maybe crossing the line because he's going up against an old enemy. The fact that it's Tombs is just convenient. Right. It does kind of seem like Kevin is back for the dead here. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So here's a story about an old enemy encountering Constantine while he's at his lowest ebb, and Constantine managing to beat him anyway. Well, that brings us to Vertigo Jam number one. Now, we already did a story from Vertigo Jam number one on this podcast, if I remember right, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Vertigo Jam was a 1993 promotional issue with little stories from several of the flagship Vertigo series at the time. We already covered the Sandman story, The Castle. This story was written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, colors by Tom Zuiko, letters by Gaspar, and edited by Stuart Moore. And for what it's worth, the cover of Vertigo Jam number one was by Glenn Fabry. And the Vertigo Jam cover featured, like, all of the characters from the iconic Vertigo comic books all kind of hanging out in the scene. It's actually pretty cool. Was the castle the one where the guy is supposed to be directing a play? No, that's called Fear of Falling or Fear of Flying. I forget which one. Fear of Flying, I think. Okay. That was another side story. The castle is the one where the guy is... He always has weird dreams when he sleeps in hotel rooms. Anyway, a guy is sleeping and he dreams that he tours the dream castle. Oh, that's right. He meets Nuala. It was yeah. Like, it sort of brought us up to date on a bunch of Sandman characters who were about to become relevant in Season of Mists or something. Yeah, we had sort of introductions to all of the castle cast and what they were up to, what they were feeling. It was very... It was a little bit perfunctory, but it was effective at telling us what each of these characters was going to be about shortly. It wasn't Season of Mists, because Nuala wasn't 
one of Morpheus's servants before Season of Mists. No, this appeared in the trades as the opening to Kindly Ones. Kindly Ones. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. all right. So, I see. So this story definitely is linked to this moment in the comic. As we open on John, still homeless, telling a story to buy a swig of booze from another guy. This is a long time ago, right? He says. And we can see it, because we cut to him looking svelte in his suit and coat. Bloody ages. Made a mine called Seth. Real smooth operator. Had to beat the birds off with a big shitty stick. Birds in this case is slang for women. He did not have to fight birds. Well, not yet. John goes on talking about how the ladies was the basis of his and Seth's friendship. Horniness and sexism was, the, was what they had in common. Tenor says I get Martha before you. Also. I'm serious. Make it more interesting. Done. Seth, by the way, could be a right bastard, John says. He treated some of the girls he was with like shit. That's it? You're going? Uh-huh, he says, and throws a pound note at her. You'd find these girls at parties or wherever, crying their eyes out. I'd bollock him about it, but... Don't talk shit, mate. Screw him and leave him. That's my motto. But Jesus, he was me mate. He'll let your pals off with some ridiculous bloody things sometimes. Dodgy remarks, ropey ideas. Frigate, it's one of the things friendship's about. And maybe you see some of the bad stuff in yourself, and you keep your mouth shut. And then there was Annette. So Seth hits things off with this woman named Annette. She is a languages student from Calais. That's in France. Annette is basically the picture of the French beauty stereotype. She does kind of look like uh, Audrey Tattoo. <laughs> A little later, John gets back from a trip to the States to find that Seth is living with Annette, which is more serious than he's ever been about anyone. Yeah, John makes some kind of a gesture here. I don't understand it. Hmm. He's got his fist down. I don't know what that means. Oh, oh, I do know what that means. He's, he's putting his thumb down. Seth is under her thumb. Ah. Under the thumb. Goof. Piss off. It's not like that at all. Bloody well sounds like it, chum. It's not, mate. She's the one. She wasn't. Seth gave a party about a week later, halfway through the shit hit the fan. What's wrong with you? I was only talking to her, for God's sake. She's an old friend. You are kissing her, Seth. Do you think I am stupid? Am I not enough for you? You freaking stupid French bitch. You think you're so freaking special, don't you? All you're good for is the odd bloody length, you whore. Get the hell out of my house right now. Yeah, and he kind of grabs her and shoves her. Christ he's, he's physically rough with her, but he's not actually hitting her. That's going to come up in a second. Christ almighty, Seth, you'll hurt her. Screw her. The uh, guy hearing the story interjects at this point. What's so bloody magic about all this? That's where I come in. So John takes her home, and she asks up front if he's a wizard. Doesn't look like he answers. Yeah, he's kind of avoiding the subject. She says all she wants is to get out of this place, and he says he can't say no to that. So they go to John's place. She asks about his magic books. She flirts a little about whether he needs magic to get women. And they are immediately screwing. I was thinking, not tonight, for God's sake. Not straight away. Think of old Seth. Bollocks to Seth. Believe me, she was good. I didn't once twig what she was up to. Because as John sleeps, Annette reads his books. He hadn't hit her, but he came bloody close. And that can be nearly as scary for women, you know? Reminds them you can do them a lot more damage than they can do you. And that speech there about sort of domestic abuse reflects stuff that Tulip said on the same subject in Preacher. Right, she had kind of intimated that it's not even really the 
the violence that is horrifying so much as the knowledge that someone can do that to you. Every bloody night for three months she was at them books, and she was a languages student. Like I said, I didn't notice. As he says that he didn't notice, it shows a panel of them in a passionate embrace. Mm -hmm. She was keeping him distracted in a way that he had no objections to. Yeah. So one night I'm round at Seth's, feeling pretty shitty because he doesn't know about me and Annette yet. You haven't heard from her, have you? Funny you should say that, mate. She showed up again last night right out of the blue. She's given me another chance, John. My Christ, I don't deserve it. I was such a shit to her. Annette calls Seth back to bed, so John buggers off, and he runs into Annette coming in the door. But you're with... Oh my god, my god, John. I have... I was so angry, so wrong. How could I? I read your books, John. I made a deal. Eh? Uh, who with? The... the third of... Jesus Christ, Seth! Yep, John runs back upstairs. Seth is having sex with what he thinks is Annette. It's not her, mate! He looks down at her, and she's still looking like Annette. Smiles. Mysteriously. The real Annette has come in behind John. And it's squeezed, John narrates. Seth starts screaming. John Constantine says to run. He takes off, but Annette is just standing there in the doorway. Yeah, just transfixed. The screaming stops suddenly. And is that Seth's penis? <laughs> well, let's, let's take it in order here, because John explains what's going on with the third, if you haven't figured it out yet. The third of the three, the lord of a billion faces, the shape changer. And, yep, it throws something oblong and bloody at Annette's feet. Be seeing you. What? What happened to Annette? Asks the listener. John says he doesn't know, but he can guess, and that narration box is over a panel of an arm reaching out of a blood-filled bathtub. I mean, why didn't you use your magic stuff to fix it all up? Why don't you use it to sort yourself out now? Stop living like shit. Because I don't want to. I was too much like Seth. You gonna give us the swig of that, then? It's all yours. As usual, I think John is probably being a little too hard on himself. If he's comparing what happened between Seth and Annette to what happened between him and Kit, he was selfish, perhaps, but never cruel. Yeah, I agree with that. It sounds like there's a lot of dark stuff going on in Constantine's soul. Mm -hmm. More specifically, there was, even when he was with Kit. Okay. He sort of suggests that he almost consciously sabotaged things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the way that he feels about it. Whether it's that he couldn't give up the... The thrill, the life of magical adventure, and so he kept having adventures even when there was the danger of it running into Kit and destroying their relationship, or whether that was a sort of subconscious sabotage that he was doing because he didn't feel he was worthy of it or didn't trust it. Right. And by it, I mean their relationship. Yeah, and now he's kind of making himself pay some kind of penance. John Constantine is homeless. Yeah, well, and this is what he said earlier in the story, right? Is that there's like a black pit that he's always at risk of falling into if he stops moving forward. This is what he said in um, one of the issues about his childhood. If he stops moving forward, he'll fall. And that pit, that is something that comes from inside him. That's not just his circumstances. He has this self-destructive tendency to wallow if he has the opportunity. Right. Well, that was three depressing issues. <laughs> the uh, the one where Kit and John break up is, like, just, like, so raw and angry and, you know, chaotic. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's basically no mystical nonsense whatsoever. It's just a completely real breakup scene followed by drunken shenanigans scene. Yeah, followed by just, like, John kind of going down the spiral. Mm-hmm. Scary stuff. What did you think of the Annette story? The Vertigo Jam story? Um, uh, <laughs> pretty gruesome. It's definitely got an aspect of the black comedy to it. Yeah. And particularly with, you know, the ironic punishment of Seth. Something happens to his dick, because he thinks with his dick. Yeah, and we're we're supposed to kind of get the idea that, like, it's a little bit about, hey, remember the third of the fallen? Yeah. Uh, he's a creepy character that we showed you earlier, and he's still around, so don't forget that. But it's also, like, it's also sort of about the, the punishment of Seth and John for their chauvinistic ways. Yeah. John's sort of self-inflicted punishment that he's living now. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. What do you think of it as, like, an ad for the series? <laughs> is this a good tonal representation of Garth Ennis's run? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can't deny that it's that. So what do you think will happen next? Is John Constantine going to get a house back? I think that he probably will. I think that, you know, read what Ennis has to say about when he started on Constantine. And the first thing he did was make him terminally ill as sort of a, a shock to the system. You know, you're taking over a, a, an iconic character at this point, and the first thing you do is kill him. Right. Um, and so we, we've had a chance now to see John at a high ebb in his relationship with Kit, and now we're getting the chance to see him at a very low ebb in his life. Yeah. So I think that seeing John at different times and statuses in his life, seeing how he reacts to that, is something that Ennis really wanted to do. Well, I think that's true. I was commenting a few episodes ago, one of the episodes where he's with Kit, that he's more domesticated now yeah. than when he was in his younger years at the beginning of the series, and he would occasionally drunkenly pass out in the street, you know? Yeah. And now he's back to sleeping rough. He is. But yeah, in terms of the future of the run, I think that he will probably get back on top. And there is, of course, I think still going to be a fight with the first of the fallen and the, the plans that he's made are going to come into play. That stuff is still on the table. There's going to be a fight. And, uh, Kevin, the King of the vampires predicts that Constantine is going to win it. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't like what the devil has been doing. The devil also won to wallow in misery. I suppose <laughs> they have right. that in common. <laughs> Do we have a Constantine moment? Oh, I think maybe my most Constantine moment is when he said he wasn't going to share his bottle with Davy. Mm -hmm. But then upon hearing Davy's sob story, he does offer it to him in the end, after all. John Constantine imagines himself a real bastard, but he's actually an old softy who can't resist the impulse to help out. <laughs> a little less of a bastard than he'd like to think. Indeed. Yeah, this these issues had two moments of John arriving moments too late to save somebody, right? One with Davy and one with Seth. Yeah. And that seemed, that's, that's like very Constantine. We've noticed before how he's sometimes more of an observer in his stories than, a, than an active figure in them. The moment where he, where Davy has just died and he makes a wisecrack about, well, he must be my friend, he's dead. That's, a, that's an interesting Constantine moment for me. Both because he was completely useless at helping Davy, but also 
the way that he's sort of coming alive and calculating already to deal with uh, Kev. Yeah, that's a good one. I do want to point out, we've been having a lot of fun at the expense of Kev. Before we leave him forever, I do want to point out that Garth Ennis actually did create a character named Kev. Kev Hawkins. He was an antagonist to the Authority. Well, I didn't know that. I thought the Authority was Warren Ellis. Yeah, they are. But Garth Ennis wrote a series of one-shots in which the Authority interacted with his character Kev. I see. He's a an SAS-trained soldier who is also a loser. <laughs> Okay. And who accidentally kills the entire authority in 12 seconds in his first appearance. All right. Good to know. (laughs) All right. In our next Hellblazer episode, John's finest hour. But first, join us in two weeks for the final recap episode as Preacher ends with a hell of a vision. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Eric. Our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us by email, vertiguys at gmail.com. Seriously, send us some emails. We want to answer your questions. We want to do it. You can reach me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. You can reach me on Twitter at Vertiguys. You can find our Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you want to interact with whatever podcast platform you use to give us a positive rating or review, we certainly appreciate it, and it helps people to find the show. We're itching to read a positive review on the air. Recommend us to a friend. Recommend us to a lover. Recommend us to a stranger. (laughs) That could be an awkward conversation. (laughs) What do you mean? I'm always talking about podcast recommendations with my lovers. Oh, okay. Do you pick up any good podcasts that way? That's how I got Cinema Squirrel. (laughs) That's actually a pretty good outcome. Yeah. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Loretta broke my heart in a letter. She told me she was leaving and her life would be better. Joan broke it off over the phone. After the tone, she left me alone. Jen said she'd never, ever see me again. When I saw her again, she said it again. Jen met another man. Lisa got amnesia, just forgot who I am. You're going to ask me if I used all of my nicknames for Kev? Yeah, what else you got? Kevin, Kevin 11, Kevin 11, Kevin even backed a little Joe. <laughs> <laughs>